Okay, Adam, we are now recording. Um, if you could say and spell your first and last name for me, please, and spell it. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll go ahead and get started right after that. Uh, Adam Jackson, A-D-A-M, Adam Jackson, J-A-C-K-S-O-N. All right, Adam, and today is midterms, midterm election day. Um, tell me how you are feeling today, just as an overall individual. How are you feeling about these elections? Um, same way I felt yesterday, for the most part. I think that... Uh, uh, Maryland, we have an opportunity to disrupt uh, plantation politics uh, by electing a new governor. Uh, they've been jealous uh, because the Democratic Party typically hasn't supported um, black issues, uh, issues that affect black people, I should say. And, you know, I think that that's, that's basically, uh, in terms of my perspective on what people should be thinking about, there's that, and also a lot of down-ballot races happening in Maryland, uh, particularly Baltimore City. Uh, you know, there's the Green Party candidates running. So I think people should be paying attention to the down ballot races, the questions on the ballot, um, and putting in a new governor. But absent that, I feel pretty uh, like the same way I felt yesterday about uh, politics here in this state. Okay. Now um, you've mentioned something important there. You mentioned the phrase plantation politics. Explain to me what that is for someone who may not know. Yeah. So in many different ways, um, you know, plantation is really a metaphor. And so in many different ways, a lot of black politicians operate on this uh, plantation uh, in respects to how they uh, their relationship, rather, with the party, with the Democratic Party. So we allow people like Mike Miller, who's the president of the Senate, one of the longest, the, the longest serving Senate president in the country, to essentially operate as the overseer for different uh, politicians who are black here in the state of Maryland. And so he controls a lot of the uh, issues that uh, or a lot of the uh uh, bills and laws that are passed through Annapolis, and a lot of people don't understand that he's the kind of the uh, center of gravity for a lot of different politicians, black people in particular, uh, black people in particular. So what happens is that um, you know if you want to get anything done, you have to have a good relationship with Mike Miller, and so that's just one example of how in many ways we capitulate to the uh, party and white leaders in in office, but we don't really understand how we need to build power in the long term so that we can build the infrastructure necessary so that black people can get the things that we need from our government. But the ultimate, but ultimate but that's the problem is that we follow the lead of overseers and Democrats who say they have the interests of black people at heart, but they don't. And they kind of operationalize that through their politics. Okay, and talk to me a little bit of, about how leaders of a beautiful struggle um, work to encourage or work to educate voters so that we don't have this, um, we don't have plantation politics um, taking place within the state. So one of the things that uh, we tried to do this year, for example, we've released our uh, first uh, legislative report card. And essentially what it did, it gave a reviews of different legislators in Annapolis, particularly Baltimore City's delegation, some members of the Black Caucus and other non-black legislators who are allies to assess their racial justice, uh, uh, the racial justice um, if their platforms for office or if their work in Annapolis, rather, uh, had a racial justice uh, bent to it. And so we were assessing, you know, different things that they did during session, particularly around criminal justice and education. And so we, are, it, we released that report card, I believe, in April of this year. 
And essentially what we did was uh, we just kind of took people through, like, this is what your legislators have been doing in Annapolis. And so we were trying to educate people about what their legislators do when they actually go to office, when they go to um, the, the chambers and they're talking to these um, lobbyists and legislators about what they want to do, what really happens behind closed doors. And so the, uh, we believe that's important and vital to educating the population about what's happening. Because of, because ultimately in Baltimore City, you know, a lot of people don't get a chance to make it to Annapolis to actually see what's happening in these hearings, to see what's what people the comments that people are making, uh, particularly when they talk about crime in Baltimore. Uh, but we think it's really important that people are educated about those uh, these politicians and what they're doing. Okay. Um, talk to me a little bit about the data that you guys collected for this report card. Um, what what was surprising, or what did you guys find that you know you can like quote for me now? Uh, one example of uh, something that's really important for that report card, uh, Bobby Zirkin, who is the who is the chair of the of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate. In the Senate. Uh, he we gave him an F. He was one of only two Fs in the report card, and the reason why we gave him an F is that Bobby Zirkin has been a consistent supporter of the Fraternal Order of Police or the FOP. Uh, they've given him money. Uh, the bail industry, um, you know, he's not been a real big fan of reforms for policing, always siding with law enforcement. And he's been one of the biggest blockages to police reform in the state of Maryland. And so, so he, it's important that the community knows who he is, what he does, and why uh, we singled him out at getting an F, because he is a big blockage to uh, moving those um, moving forward here in the state of Maryland. Now, there's other legislators that we gave better grades to because they've shown a consistent amount of support, not just for legislation that we support, but just other progressive issues. People like uh, now State Senator uh, uh, Mary Washington, people like Senator Antonio Hayes, people like Nick Mosby. Like Those are the kinds of folks, um, they may not be perfect, but when they support issues that are actually going to have an impact on our community, then you got to be able to give them their, their chops for at least advocating when it counts, even though they may... Uh, trip up on other things, you know, at least they're supporting issues in our community that are impactful. Okay. Now, you guys looked, you said that two of the main avenues that you all looked at for this report card was education and police reform? Yeah, criminal justice reform. Criminal mm -hmm. justice reform. Um, now, what specifically within that area did you guys look at? Um, Like, what criteria did we use? Or? Yeah, or like policies, specific policies that you guys kind of targeted um, to grade the, the candidates on. So there have been uh, several uh, flashpoints in terms of uh, criminal justice reform in particular. Uh, a couple things that pop out immediately is immediately after the death of, uh, or the murder, rather, of Freddie Gray in 2015, um, the people were talking about what's the next steps for police reform, keeping in mind that in that same session, because Freddie Gray died in April of 2015, that was right at the end of Maryland's legislative session in 2015. There were no bills passed in 2015 for police reform because um, Mike Miller, Senate president, did not want those things passed. And so after Freddie Gray's murder, uh, there was all this conversation about what's the next changes, you know, what should we be implementing? And so we decided, um, well, we were, we just decided to go uh, with what we had already been advocating for, which is changing Maryland's Law Enforcement Officers' Bill of Rights, uh, which is a law that's um, one of the strictest laws in the country around uh, protecting police rights uh, when they commit misconduct, things that they get access to, the average res uh, average citizens don't get access to. And so we believe that was uh, it was way too much protection for police and that we need to loosen those laws up. And so we've made some headway, uh, but we've run into issues with some legislators like Bobby Zirkin 
on uh, the, on trying to make sure that uh, they don't have access to all these extra privileges that average uh, citizens in America don't have access to. And so uh, we've had so a lot of people's grades in that report were based off of that. Um, a second thing that pops up with criminal justice reform is bail reform. And so bail reform uh, is important because people should not be in prison because they can't pay bail. A lot of times poor working class black folks, poor and working class black folks, uh, don't have access to the amount of money that they need when they're imprisoned and can't pay bail. So if, like, even if bail's only $500, the average person uh, who's working class living in West Baltimore probably doesn't have that on hand to just do that. So in many, time, in many cases, they go into debt paying back bail bondsmen. And uh, you know, sell or selling off their houses, or you know, or what have you. And so, Maryland's uh, Court of Appeals ruled in uh, 2017 that they were uh, that no one should be in jail because they cannot pay bail. It makes it unconstitutional. And so, uh, we were advocating that we just uphold that rule, that we try to see how it works out with bail reform. And so, a lot of legislators began to flip on us, initially saying they supported us. But um, then the bail industry came down and tried to sway a lot of different legislators, uh, people like Cheryl Glenn, um, people like Talmadge Branch, a bunch of legislators that were getting swung by the bail industry, a multi-million dollar industry. Uh, but we ended up defeating them uh, in 2017. And so um, there were, but, I, but I, we mentioned that in the report. And the reason why we brought it up is because, you know, we, start, we started off the session with like polite, nice conversation about bail. Like if you are imprisoned and you, you, know, you don't have the income to pay to get out of prison, that in many cases, you know, you end up paying back, you know, uh, you know, these these uh, this debt. And so people agree with us in concept, like, oh, that's so terrible. That's so racist that that would happen to only black people. And then when it came time to pass the law, you know, they was getting donations and getting taken out to dinner by bail bonds industry people. And so uh, that those two things that are important uh, and they've been one of the more important fights that we've had in the past couple of years. Mm -hmm. grant money that you all have received to kind of um, work and kind of work around those policy changes and things like that and just educating everyday Baltimoreans about it? Yeah, so um, in terms of education, uh, that that's really centers around giving black people more access to resources to build schools and, build, and, uh, and to hold accountable schools in our community. And so in many ways, uh, there's a lot of black people around the city that are already doing that. One thing that we've actually, one issue that we've had in the legislature is that there's a lot of the white nonprofit organizations, particularly white nonprofit advocacy groups, who are, the, all, you know, you see them on television going to Annapolis saying constantly, like, we need more money for school, we need to fight for our children. But in many cases, these are white people who are not from Baltimore, don't live in Baltimore. And you t when you talk about the resources that they get to actually um, fund an education agenda, you know, quote unquote, a lot of time it comes from people, you know, that are just looking to maintain an organization's status as opposed to what making it about what it's supposed to be about, which is supposed to be getting more resources for our institutions and our community, the schools in our community to improve the quality of life for our kids. And so uh, what we found, and it was all this conversation about the Kerwin Commission, which was supposed to, uh, which is a state, um, state commission that was uh, formed by Larry Hogan to essentially come up with recommendations around education reform and what should happen with education in the state of Maryland. And, you know, in many ways, that's, uh, it's, it's not focused on black and working class black people um, here in, uh, well, working class black people here in Baltimore City. So we've been working with a bunch of different uh, student leaders in education, particularly the Coalition for Black Leaders in Education, uh, which is a grassroots coalition of different uh, parents, 
organizations, different people in community who essentially are trying to figure out what can we do to make sure that our communities have more control, more say in what happens in our schools. And so uh, we're working with them. We're a part. Of, we helped create it, the coalition, but we don't control the coalition. We're just a part of it. And we're uh, we're actually they actually have a summit coming up soon where we're going to be figuring out what's the, our education agenda for 2019. Okay. And um, now, can you talk a, a little bit about um, any endorsements um, for any particular parties that uh, you guys are essentially endorsing? Um, we don't have any particular endorsements. Um, the only the one thing that we are talking telling people about Larry Hogan is that you know. In 2014, when he was running against Anthony Brown, um, lots of people uh, hated or despised Martin O'Malley so much when he was governor that, you know, people like me, like I despised Martin O'Malley. So I did, it was, you know, unconscionable that I would vote for Larry, uh, for Anthony Brown. And so Larry Hogan, I didn't know who he was. I had no idea what, you know, what he stood for, so I voted for him in 2014. And then four years later, you know, we're, we're seeing the outgrowth of his a lot of his policies and some people's line about him is that he isn't that bad, but when you see some of the things he actually put into place, particularly the crime bill uh, that was proposed last session, which would have given more mandatory minimums uh, for illegal handgun possession, you know, those kinds of racist policies are the things that are the ilk of the Republican Party. And the Democrats, too, because the Democrats supported that uh, that, that measure, too. Uh, so I think that, um, so in terms of the governor's race, uh, I've been, I told people to vote for uh, Ben Jealous because I think that he's probably... Uh, he's not beholden to the uh, Democratic Party establishment. Uh, they haven't really supported him in the state of Maryland. A lot of the uh, traditional Democrats that who are supposed to support us on progressive issues, quote unquote, they haven't really supported Ben Jealous at all. And so uh, I think that even if he won, that he would not be, hold, be beholden to the Democratic Party machine. And he in many ways could do things more independently than any other previous Democratic governor, uh, particularly things that are, that are probably good for black people. And so... You know, Ben Jealous, I think he'd be a good, he'd be good to support him. Um, in terms of some of the other races, um, I believe it's the uh, 43rd District, which is in East Baltimore. Uh, uh, Andy Ellis and Glenn Ross, they're both running for delegate as part of the Green Party here in the general election. And I think that people should support them uh, because Green Party's, uh, well, them as individuals, they've been independent in terms of advocating for our community. And, you know, and now they're running on the Green Party, which means they also would not be beholden to the Democratic Party establishment. Um, but outside of that, that, and that's you know that's just my personal perspective. But uh, outside of that, you know, people should vote in their interests in the community, and people should figure out who support. Like like your ballot shouldn't be blue or red; it should be black. You know, your ballot your ballot should be focused on what your interests are, as opposed to what party it relies on. So I think that um, outside of that, I don't really have any endorsements. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of the governor's race, um, what do you think, or what policies do you think Ben Jealous? So there's uh, two major things. Uh, one, of course, being police and uh, well, criminal justice reform, uh, particularly around law enforcement officers' bill of rights. I think uh, his support, the governor's support uh, of that, if Ben Jealous became governor, I think he'd be in a prime position to actually um, get that law changed, get those, uh, in terms of um, what police have access to and the rights that they have that residents don't. So I would, uh, I think that once he gets in office, he could do that. And also, um, another thing that we've actually been talking about in terms of marijuana legalization has been making sure that if Maryland legalizes marijuana, that we also focus on the tax revenue from that marijuana and making sure it goes to communities that were impacted by the war on drugs, because that's reparations. 
Like if you live in West Baltimore and Sandtown and your community was decimated by, you know, the war on drugs and police constantly over policing your community, then you should reap the benefits of legalization. Because if you don't have access to the money to build, rebuild your community, then there's no, no one should expect you to be able to transform your material conditions. And so I think if Ben Jealous was governor, and he has said this on multiple occasions about marijuana legalization, but I think that we can have a we can have a first real conversation about what it means for reparations for black folks and communities decimated by the war on drugs. So I think those are two particular policies that he could uh, support, that he said he would support publicly. Okay. Now, um, how would leaders, how would you guys, leaders of Reviewable Struggle, ensure that those funds are allocated um, and those reparations are received for the black community? Well, I mean, that's to be discussed because the main thing is if we can if we can at least begin the conversation and start the uh, real dialogue about us even getting resources for that, then we can really move in the direction of figuring out how to govern it. One example of how we've been participating in stuff like that has been the uh, youth fund here in Baltimore, twelve million dollar children and youth fund, and so uh, that was a fund that was created in two thousand sixteen. But when it was created, there were no rules or regulations about how it would be governed, and so the pro the part of the process we're in right now is helping construct the process by which the U fund uh, distributes dollars and making sure that it doesn't just go into the hands of a, a few small corporate white institutions, but that it goes into smaller community-based grassroots black organizations instead, and that that be the default so that more, more wealth is spread around. And so there's examples like that, uh, processes that we're creating that can influence something like a, a fund for communities that are impacted by the war on drugs. Uh, we have a Black Legislative Agenda Day, happening the first Saturday in December, and uh, actually it's going to be that on that same day in the morning is this, the Coalition for Black Leaders in Education's Summit for Education. So uh, we're going to be doing that, and then right after that we're going into legislative session to fight with uh, some of the new senators and delegates that are uh, in office now. Um, and we know we've always been focused on, uh, you know, how do we hold our politicians accountable in Annapolis. So we, uh, we're looking forward to a really active uh, session and also just continuing a lot of the uh, advocacy work that we've been doing for the past eight years. Okay. Um, now, do you feel that there has been anything that I have not asked you um, during our interview today? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No. Okay. Anything that you would like to follow up on or just kind of like add a little more of, add a little more to? Um, you know... One of the one of the important things that uh, that people need to understand about voting is that voting now is not too much different that, too much different now than what it was before. Trump, Donald Trump being president of the United States has not changed the fact that this country is a white supremacist country. Donald Trump is the president that America deserves because that's exactly what this country is. So tying up all of our emotions and voting to Donald Trump and the blue wave and all that, like you should vote because you, it's a part of the the civic process and transforming your community. That's what voting is. Anything else that people are attaching to it is really just a source of like fear-mongering uh, for, that is being perpetuated by social media and white corporate media. Like people getting all caught up in the 24-hour news coverage of what Donald Trump is doing and that being the justification for why they vote is, is ludicrous. People should vote and be involved in their community because it, they should. That's the, you know, that's the end of the conversation. And I think too many times um, political conversation is dominated by ego and emotion 
and what other people are saying around us as opposed to what we know to be true is that you should be supporting things in your community that benefit your community at the end of the day. So if that's through voting, if that's through being involved in a community-based organization or anything else, you should be doing that anyway. Otherwise, we're just feeding into this cycle of corporate media, social media, things that don't make a difference when we should be focusing on things that will make a difference. Um, before we close the interview, um, would you mind telling our audience how they can find you on social platforms uh, of their own? Sure, sure. Um, well, if they want to reach my organization, uh, it's at LBS Baltimore on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We have a website at www.lbsbaltimore.com. And uh, my social media is Smart Black Man on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as well. All right. Thank you so much, Adam. I appreciate it. Absolutely.